Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is with me as always. Uh, we have an interesting episode for you today. We're going to kick things off as usual with our news roundup. For our question of the week, we're going to shake things up a little bit and we're going to have an interview that Aaron uh, has done with Alison Faulkner, who is not only one of his neighbors, but is a social media personality. She's a, a writer and event producer. She's very active on uh, YouTube and other social media channels. And so Aaron's had a conversation with her about uh, what she does, how she does it, how she feels about the different uh, social media channels that she uses, uh, how she is able to do this uh, and and uh, make a living and so on. And so uh, that'll be an interesting interview for you, for you, as I say, a slight departure from what we usually do where we kind of take it in turns interviewing each other. So uh, more along the lines of some of the interviews that we've done in the past with, uh, with other people. And then our third segment will be a preview of uh, next week's Apple event, uh, for which I will be traveling out to, to California. So we'll talk about what we're expecting to see there uh, in terms of the iPhone and Apple Watch and so on. So that will be the third segment, and then we'll wrap up as usual uh, with a weekly pick, and it will be my turn to provide a recommendation. I'm going to recommend a movie um, that I've seen recently. So let's kick up, off with the uh, news roundup. We're going to start out talking about uh, Apple's uh, EU case. So the EU this week uh, issued a judgment in, in this investigation that's been conducting of Apple's tax practices, specifically with regard to uh, the taxes it pays through its Irish subsidiary. The second topic will be uh, Facebook eliminating the editors from its trending topics section. And then the third uh, topic we'll cover in the news roundup will be the announcements coming out of the big German tech trade show IFA. Uh, or IFA, that's, that's typically pronounced IFA. Uh, so let's just kick off with the Apple EU case quickly. Um, it's obviously big news, but uh, somewhat anticipated on Monday, the Financial Times ran a piece sort of previewing the substance, even though it didn't uh, have the amount, which ended up being, I think, bigger than some people expecting. Uh, 13 billion euros, 14 and a half billion dollars in back taxes at Apple, uh, according to the EU, should have paid in Ireland, but didn't, and that the EU now wants Apple to pay uh, the, the funny thing here, of course, is that Ireland doesn't want the money. Uh, so Ireland and Apple agreed long ago that Apple was paying an appropriate amount of tax, and, and Ireland's been happy with that ever since, in part because Apple has a big business in Ireland and uh, has been uh, uh, creating jobs and so on there for quite some time now. Uh, Aaron, what was your take on all this? Well, I, you know, I have a couple of thoughts. I really appreciated the insight you wrote earlier this week about how this all of a sudden all these you know tech journalists are are uh, EU tax experts. <laughs> so right. I hesitate yep. to wait in because I'm definitely not one of those. But but I think there's some interesting observations. One is, uh, you know, there's a legitimate argument that Apple is kind of playing playing both sides of an issue in, in the argument that, uh, that they've been taxed appropriately. My understanding is that the EU is angry because it, it's true that Apple did what the Irish government told them to do, um, and the Irish government's argument is, is we would let everybody do this. But there's a lot of like case-by-case case kind of analysis involved, and that's where the EU, is my understanding, got angry. And, and it has to do with Apple's basically telling Ireland, look, we, you know, most of the economic production involved here is happening because we have really smart people in California designing these products. Right. And so that shrinks dramatically the amount of money that would be taxable in Ireland. And then Apple in the U.S., on the other hand, is saying, look, you know, all this money we're making is being made because of sales offshore. You know, 
because we're manufacturing these products and selling them elsewhere other than the United States, and it's kind of two sides of the same, like mm -hmm. like two argu two op opposing arguments on the same issue. Um, that said, knowing how the law works, I, you know, that's how this stuff happens. And, and, the, right. and the, I personally, I think you know, I think any country should be entitled to have whatever tax policy they feel is important to encourage the growth of their economy. Right. And I including making special cases, and I realize that goes against the treaty that Ireland has with the EU, mm -hmm. and that's where the big problem is here. But, but as a general, I think I think I think nations and governments should be entitled to make the deals they see are best to to create the economic productivity they're hoping for. Yeah, and that's that's one of the challenges with the EU, of course, is that these countries sign up to be part of this common market and it has certain rules associated with it and one of them prohibits state aid which is uh, defined as giving certain companies favorable treatment and that's the problem it's perfectly legitimate everywhere else as I've seen several people say this week US states compete on the same basis it's the reason why many companies are headquartered for tax purposes in Delaware um, and uh, you know that, that simply can't un can't happen in that same way in the EU um, but yeah, I mean, the piece, and, and we'll post a link to it, the piece that I wrote about this basically said, I'm not a tax expert either, and I'm not going to claim to be one, so I can't comment on the merits. Clearly, uh, lawyers and accountants at both Apple and the Irish government considered this to be a fair approach, and the EU disagrees with that, so even people that are experts can't agree on it. Um, but the point is, that what seems rather... Uh, unreasonable to me is that the EU now wants to go back all the way to 2003 and start uh, having Apple pay those back taxes, which, you know, in the context of that arc of time, it's not that much money um, in terms of how much money Apple's made over that period, but it means restating all the financials. It means potentially uh, recouping taxes that have been paid in other jurisdictions in order to pay them in Ireland instead during that period. It's really messy business, and it is a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's roughly half a year's worth of net income for Apple, so it's certainly not insignificant. I feel like we could go on talking about this for quite a lot longer, but I'll let you say one more thing, and then we'll move on. Well, just that um, it's clear that, that there is a there is a discouraging punitive effect that the EU is going for with this. I mean, they're they're making an example of Apple to discourage other countries doing these kinds of deals, and there already have been other companies that have been and countries that have been on the wrong end of an EU decision in the same space. I think Starbucks had a deal with the Netherlands, for example, that got hammered by the EU, right. and so th this adds a ton of profile, like a ton of attention to this issue for the EU. So they have an interest in scaring people by making the judgment go all the way back to 2003. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, so the second news roundup topic is Facebook eliminating the editors for its trending topics. And this is follow-up on something that we talked about a while back on the podcast. Um, we had a longer discussion about Facebook's influence on social media and, and news coverage and so on. Um, in this particular case, Facebook got in hot water previously because there were allegations that its editors who managed the trending topics section were f unfairly favoring uh, more liberal news and uh, blocking or, or uh, uh, failing to show conservative news stories and, and so on. And Facebook fairly robustly uh, responded to all of that. But at this point, Facebook's decided to just eliminate the editors entirely. And whereas they previously were responsible for taking sort of algorithmically generated trending suggestions and then filtering them and posting them to make sure that um, only what was posted was appropriate, uh, they've now largely basically all got fired last week and uh, 
And we've already seen, you know, one false story about Megyn Kelly of Fox News pop up in that trending topic section. So it was almost immediate confirmation that this was a bad idea. But uh, it, it's part of this ongoing story about Facebook's influence over what we see because it's such a window onto the world for so many of us who consume news in part through what we see on Facebook. Uh, it's worth pointing out this is a section that only appears on the desktop. So if you consume Facebook only on your mobile device or most on your mobile device, it's, it's pretty much irrelevant. Um, but it, it highlighted again Facebook's sort of dual role as both arbiter of what we see and also as a company that doesn't want to be seen as a media company. Um, and so it's this tricky sort of conflict and, and paradox that happens with, with Facebook around news and media in general. Yeah, I, you know, I wish they kept human editors to at least filter out clickbait because that's what that Megan Kelly article essentially was. I mean, it was, right. it was just a lie that would drive traffic to that website. And uh, the, the problem, uh, it, unless you're actually in Facebook paying attention to how long people are spending on an article in a way that would indicate its reliability. Um, and I'm not even sure that would necessarily work because sometimes you get really salacious things that are written that draw people in, but they're not worth promoting still. Right. Uh, I just have a hard time understanding how an algorithm is going to essentially prevent this from happening in the future. Right. I, I mean, in the end, it was a human editor that dumped it. Right, the mm -hmm. Megyn Kelly article. Mm -hmm. It wasn't right. the algorithm. It was because all this attention was brought to it, and somebody at Facebook hit the delete button. Right. And in uh, this kind of stuff is going to keep happening. NPR had a fun take on it yesterday. They basically said, you know, we've gone from doubting the de the decisions of a dozen people to now having a reason to doubt the decisions of a billion people, because that's <laughs> essentially what the algorithm <laughs> reflects. Right. Right. Yeah, and there's another point to be made about algorithms too, is they have to be programmed by somebody. Somebody's making decisions somewhere right. about what should be prioritized, what should be deprioritized, you know, which indicators are more important and so on. And there, there's a lot of editorial in that process too. You know, we don't think of those people as editors because they're computer programmers, but they're, they're doing much the same kind of work, only doing it upfront and kind of universally rather than doing it on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, you could argue, well, that means they're at least not intervening in specific circumstances, but you get biases that can easily creep in that way, either deliberately or inadvertently as well. Um, third news roundup topic I want to briefly cover is the, the news out of IFA. This is a big German tech trade show. Uh, a lot of my analyst colleagues have gone out to it um, to, to cover the announcements there. Uh, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon, so it's Wednesday evening now in Germany. Um, we've seen announcements already today from a number of companies, including Samsung and Lenovo slash Motorola, as well as Asus and others. Um, bigger news from Samsung and, L and Lenovo around Samsung's uh, Gear S3 smartwatch, and then from Lenovo, the Yoga Book, an interesting sort of innovative take on the laptop tablet space, and then um, Moto Z Play, which is a really long-lived uh, smartphone, um, as well as um, one of the mods, so one of the sort of accessories that goes with it, which is a really powerful 10x zoom camera that you can kind of snap onto these Moto uh, devices that are sort of modular in nature. Um, the other theme that's coming out is lots of stuff being quote unquote announced, which was announced earlier in the year already. So kind of an opportunity for companies perhaps to show off something to a bigger audience that they technically had announced back in June, for example. So it's been kind of a third theme. Aaron, I know you haven't been following this closely, but was there anything that kind of stood out to you from these pieces of news? I'm surprised that the new Samsung Gear watch is bigger. Right. Because it feels like that was a pretty legitimate complaint of the previous version, yeah. and it's it's a weird doubling down. I mean, 
they're clearly saying, look, men are the people we want to buy this thing, mm-hmm. right? I think the addition of LTE is pretty cool, but uh, Samsung often adds features prematurely, so I'm curious how that plays out with battery life and just yeah. general functionality. That, in fact, that's the one thing about the Gear 3 that I think will be most fascinating is to see how the LTE works and what people make of it, um, because it tells us, it, I think it gives us a, a, some sense of how Apple's going to think about that as far as you know the Apple Watch 3, whenever it is that that comes out. Right, yeah, and there was a story from Bloomberg that Apple was kind of quote-unquote struggling to make sort of uh, cellular service and various other things work, which was a strange positioning because nobody was expecting that to happen this time around, and the timing of the article was such that those decisions had all been made months before. But uh, it is something that, you know, at some point you would expect Apple to add, but as with uh, LTE and smartphones, you would guess that they would add it when it makes sense rather than when everybody else is doing it necessarily. So it would be interesting to watch how the timing works on that. Um, but yeah, some interesting stuff from Lenovo. I haven't looked at all the details yet, but some clever technology in this new uh, yoga book as well. And, and the Moto Z, I mean, Motorola has done several phones in the past that sort of differentiated on battery life. It's still a big complaint from people who use smartphones. So good place to focus. And I continue to be somewhat skeptical about the whole kind of modular approach to smartphones. I, I tend to think that diversifying the smartphone line ever so slightly is probably going to be the more successful approach than these add-ons where there's a lot of cost in accessories and so on, but we'll see how that all pans out. I agree. I just don't think that the smartphone is something that people are really that into customizing in, in the way that a modular phone would would contemplate. So right. we'll yeah. see. Yeah, no, we will. Um, okay, well, that wraps up our news roundup. So our next segment is the interview that I mentioned at the top uh, that Erin has done with Alison Faulkner. She has uh, her online <clears throat> personality and presence is mostly called The Allison Show, reflecting the fact there's a lot of video involved. Um, she's very present on YouTube and other social media channels. And so uh, Aaron happens to have her as a neighbor, and so he uh, has spent some time talking to her, and uh, we'll play that interview for you next. All right, everybody. Well, I'm really, really excited to have my neighbor on with me. This is Allison Faulkner. Just to give a brief introduction, although I'm going to let her do most of the uh, introducing for herself. Allison is a writer. Uh, she's also an event producer and a, a an energetic and magnetic social media personality. Um, we've brought her on because she has insights that we don't have when it comes to social media, especially regarding our question of the week. So our, our, our question of the week this week is, what can we learn about social media platforms from someone who makes a living on them? Uh, Allison does that. She's great at it. And I, I'm confident she'll have some really exciting things and interesting things to tell us. So Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. I'm very excited to be here. That was such a nice introduction. Oh, you deserved every <laughs> word of it. <laughs> Thank you. So I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm confident I did not do you justice. So why don't you give us a brief intro on The Allison Show and, and kind of everything that involves. Okay. Well, I mean, you did, you, you made it sound serious and legit. I think which is which is why I liked it so much because typically what I say is oh I gave myself my own show and then I say it's not like a real show (laughs) but um just several maybe 10 years ago I started blogging and uh, after five or six years of essay blogging I 
started leaning more towards crafts and DIY. And then I changed the name of my blog to The Allison Show. And the reason I did that was, well, it was a little tongue in cheek. <clears throat> and also because I was sick of people not like knowing my name. People identify you by your, uh, well, especially now with Instagram, people identify you by your social media handle, right? right. And so back in the early day of blogging, uh, my blog used to be She Blogs, She Blogs, uh, which is a, a Ricky Martin, She Bangs, She Bangs reference, yeah. just to, to let you know which type of person I am. Um, <laughs> and, and so I changed it to The Allison Show, so my name would be in it. I started doing YouTube. I started teaching some online courses. And then Instagram came onto the scene in about four or five years ago now, I think, probably closer to four years ago. And I had been blogging for a while and I was contributing to a few sites, making a tiny bit of money, tiny bit of money that way, but I wasn't trying to monetize. Um, I My background is in advertising as a copywriter, so I was doing freelancing as a copywriter. And, you know, when my dad or other people would ask what I was doing, I, was, I said, I'm building a brand, I'm building a brand. And that sounds totally normal now, but I mean, this was seven, eight, nine years ago when that wasn't really as much of a thing. And so that was good that I was early on that, a personal brand. I think it's just, you know, maybe a little bit self-involved. And then, um, but you know, brand building is what I had a degree in too. And, and so um, when Instagram came on the scene, I started resonating with an audience on Instagram. And I had an audience from all the years of blogging, but I started growing on Instagram in a way that I never grew on my blog. And, you know, I did all the things you're supposed to do to grow an audience on your blog. And I went to the blogging conferences. And so I had to sit back and really analyze what was it that I was doing on Instagram that I wasn't doing on my blog? And why was I resonating with people in this way? And the, the big answer, the one that I didn't want was on my blog, I was really focusing on being instructional with these DIYs and how-tos, and I really like creating things, and I love teaching, and so I was super passionate about sharing those instructional things. So on Instagram, I was mostly just being myself. I was sharing updates, oh, I, this is happening on the blog, um, but it was a lot more personality-driven. And, you know, that's when I took a step back and looked at it and said, this is what resonates with me. This is my unique value proposition, if you will, in my business is me. And so I've just kind of, and the funny thing is, is that I had already changed my name to The Allison Show. I maybe instinctually knew that, but was fighting it because I wanted to be more instructional. And so ever since then, I've just done a lot of different things. Um, I hang out, as I like to say, on Instagram. I'm on Snapchat. I'm on YouTube. And then I also do in-person events. I have online courses. At my core, I like packaging content. And I think that's what I do well. And so courses or an Instagram post, anything like that, I mean, is packaging content and I'm the content. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> or, or skills or messaging, whatever I decide. Right. I, so. I think that's awesome. So, <clears throat> I mean, you know, you had, I'm sure, a slightly different audience than you have today. Talk about the audience you have today. Yeah. So I think on Instagram, you know, Instagram is an interesting social media platform because 
It's re it is really big with moms and it's also big with the younger demographic. But as Instagram has grown, the, the social media platform, I mean, it's it's stabilized. It used to be, you know, skew way younger, skew more female, skew more uh, certain demographics. And, and now it's pretty even, you know, it's kind of like Facebook. Everybody uses it. Just like right now, Snapchat skews much younger than other social media platforms. So on Instagram, I do believe my audience, I like to say they're primarily between 18 to 40, 18 to 35. I do have some, you know, definitely some younger, definitely some older. It's predominantly female. Although I do, I do have men as well. And um, on Snapchat, my audience skews a little bit younger, I would assume just because of Snapchat. YouTube is also um, an audience that skews much younger than other audiences. And I don't, I don't push to YouTube a lot because you can play the YouTube game and I don't find that to be a super profitable game for me. And the game, by that I mean, you're just working on boosting numbers, 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 and you're monetizing by your video views. The way that I personally make money on YouTube is if I'm doing some sort of um, collaboration with a brand and I monetize that way by adding you know, some video value there. So I'm creating content for them that way. I'm not, I'm not using my numbers to create or to, to, to add my value. I'm, it's more of a content based agreement. So, um, I am on Facebook. I just was really late to the game with Facebook and not very interested in Facebook. I had too many ex-boyfriends on Facebook. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the same as it is now where there's like, you can be a business page and I should get more involved with Facebook, especially with Facebook live. I do believe that Facebook live is important in the future. I, I moonlighted on Periscope and I actually got featured a couple of times on Periscope on the front page, which meant I got a really large audience on there very quickly, which I don't like because it's not an organic audience. It's not an engaged audience. And that's one thing that I really brag about, honestly, to brands is I might not have the biggest numbers. There might be pigs on Instagram that have more followers than I do, but you are not <laughs> going to get a following that's more engaged than, than my following. They're very engaged and um, it's because I keep it really organic and I don't know. It's a fun place to be. <laughs> all right. So I have a bunch of questions about everything you just told us because that was all really fascinating. And so let's, oh, start, with the, okay. let's start with the monetization <laughs> thing if we could. What, yeah. Want, uh, help, it sounds like you're not making money off of ads like YouTube might share with, with content producers. And, and, you know, when it comes to Instagram and Snapchat, there's no opportunity to share in ad revenue. So, so it sounds like you're mostly doing this by representing brands through social media. Yes, definitely. So on YouTube, I am part of what they call an MCN, a multi-channel network. And what that network does is they curate a group of content creators, influencers, if you will, and uh, br you know brands come to them and say, we want people like this. Who do you got? You know, it's like you're wheeling and dealing people. And, and so I am part of that and I've done a few campaigns through them. And so they actually, when you sign to a multi-channel network, they kind of take over like Google's place. So they're making money off my videos and then they pay me out. Um, 
and I'm making so like such a small amount of money there that I just don't even care. Like I don't care if I'm losing money there. That's not what I'm trying to do with my life. So what's interesting about Instagram is, you know, several years ago, companies would approach me saying, do you want a blog post? We'll pay you this much. And I would write back and say, you don't want a blog post. You want an Instagram post from me. And they just, they couldn't get on board. They didn't understand that. You couldn't just advertise something on Instagram. There's no direct link and this and that. And we've, we've moved so far past that. There's a lot of third-party agencies and you can sign up to be with lots of them. They're not exclusive. And they do the same thing that a multi-channel network does on YouTube where they're bringing you brands. And that's a really, really popular thing. I don't tend to do it because I'm an advertising diva and I negotiate my own contracts and I don't need, I don't need them. Um, but occasionally they'll find you some good people and the prices will be fair. But, um, yeah, oh gosh, I could talk about this forever, but yeah, sorry. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. That's, 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 that's really interesting. And so, okay, yeah. I, I mean, Instagram, like you said, has technical limitations that make it harder for mm -hmm. advertisers. And that's especially true. It seems with Snapchat. I yeah. Mean, why, so, so how is it that brands are heading into this space confidently, especially because it doesn't feel like they're going to get like the metrics and the other things that they have kind of obsessed over for decades? If they're not getting this out of Instagram and Snapchat, mm -hmm. what's giving them the confidence to turn to someone like you to represent them to your audience? Well, there's, you know, and I, I do my events. I do all, all female dance parties. Do I have I know, you there? I, oh, there you go. Yeah, you go. Yeah. Those are those are really awesome. By the way, so to the listeners, you have to go and watch some of these videos <laughs> that were shot at these dance parties because they look epic. I mean, They're absolutely epic. Yeah. It's a good time. So I do all female dance parties, and you know, it's you bring up metrics. You know, there's two types of advertising, and I don't know if this is me or Seth Godin, right? But there's there's the two types of advertising. There's metrics and measurable that type of advertising, and then there's brand association and brand awareness right and and that's what snapchat is providing and that's what um my events in-person events provide you're not going to be able to exactly measure um the impact of that like i can measure the impressions on instagram um the thing that's interesting about snapchat so so back to your question it's just a different type of advertising and the thing that's interesting about snapchat is i mean they know what they know what they're doing. And I've loved watching that platform develop because when they changed it, so you have your story, if people aren't familiar, your story is what you can post to that you can make it public for all people to see. I don't have to be following them. I add to it throughout the day. And they changed it so that it just, you watch one person's story and it just runs right into the next, next person's story. And when they made that development, I was so excited because I was like, ooh, ooh, I can't wait until they start adding ads in because I know that's what they're going to do. I mean, not because I'm a genius, but just because I'm paying attention. And that's, of course, what they started doing. Now, what Snapchat does that is fun is they have those geo filters, which... So now for my events, I offer this to the headline sponsors. I put their logo on a special filter that I pay for that happens during the dance party. And so I did, you can get up to four, that's how many I could do for my last dance party. And on two of them, I had the headline sponsors logo and Snapchat 
then after the event gives you the analytics of how many times that geofilter was used, how many times it was used, and how many impressions, like how many views it got from the people using it. So, so on the one hand, Instagram and it seems more measurable, um, but Snapchat provided that right out of the gate. And you know, Instagram finally in the last month, I think it was, just added the insights and the analytics of the impressions and the views and the engagement. Um, you know, because they're owned by Facebook now, so they've been slowly adding that in. And Instagram's just going to turn into Facebook, you know. Yeah. So, um, so. so- Snapchat is a funny example to it's, it's a really interesting example to turn mm-hmm. to because it has changed so dramatically from the kind of its original product. I mean, the original yeah. product was this sort of like throwaway communication, literally, and yeah. they become really sophisticated in their approach. What's interesting mm-hmm. to me and Yan and I have already discussed this, like Snapchat is something we have a hard time even getting. Yeah, and I don't feel bad speaking for him to say that, you know, when I go into Snapchat, <laughs> I get confused immediately. Well, so, I and, mean, clearly yeah. this is targeting a younger demographic in terms it of its usefulness as far as advertising goes. Yes, yes. And, and, I, and I don't know if it's folklore, but I did read in an article that, you know, the founders of Snapchat are very young and that was intentional. They wanted to confuse anybody who was like over the age of 30, essentially, right? Um, to, to keep you off of there, to keep me off of there, um, in, in a sense, right? Because whatever, you know, they're going to grow and it's going to get older. Um, my mom is the queen of Facebook. I'm sure one day she'll be the queen of Snapchat, right? Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's just when Pinterest first started, it was covered in pornography. And when per- Periscope, you know, they've, it's like the wild, wild west. They let the users take it over. They adopt it. And then they start adding the, the parameters, right? And I feel like that's the model of successful social media platforms. And um, just so many of us aren't there at the very beginning. We don't even know that, you know? Yeah. There's been a, a platform that's conspicuously absent from this conversation, and that's Twitter. Do, do oh, you gosh. use Twitter? Is that useful to you? Here's I got a bad taste in my mouth for Twitter. Um, I don't, I don't think it's smart that I'm not on Twitter as a personality brand. I should be on Twitter. I know better. Uh, but I just, I don't. Right. Um, and when I was working at the, at an ad agency right out of college in Salt Lake, I just felt like all of the older ad executives were so excited to, to be able to use the word tweet that it like forever turned me off because it seemed like the social media that older people thought was cool. So I was like, I'm over it. Right. Now, this is a super long time ago and Twitter has withstood the test of time. And I, I do see a lot of benefits of Twitter. I just don't bother with it because I'm only one woman, Aaron. I'm only yeah. one woman. Well, and I think that makes the point, right? Is that if it mm-hmm. was if it was worthwhile, you'd be there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, Twitter is something of a whipping boy in our podcast, so this just reaffirms some of that. Oh, okay. really? Okay, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> so, so here's the last question, just because I yes. don't want to take up too much of your time. Kind of give us, like, pull out your crystal ball and do some yeah. predicting for us. Like, oh, what do gosh. you see in the future of social media? Video, video, video. I, I think it's. I, for me, it's awesome. It's been like survival of the fittest, right? Can you blog? Can you post these cute pictures? Okay, can you do these styled pictures? 
and have enough personality to engage people. Okay, now can you, with your personality in a 10 second video clip, engage people? Can you do that? Okay, now can you hop onto Facebook Live or Periscope and engage people that way? And it's just how reality TV has crept into our television is reality TV. It's just people want more and more and more and more from their content creators, from the influencers, from the, the personalities. And it's it's all video and it's the platforms with video. I don't know if that answers the question so much other than for me, it's kind of like, you can take a cute picture, but can you be witty on command? And the people who can do that are going to continue to evolve and grow in the new platforms. So just a follow-up question on that. I mean, you mm-hmm. talked about how you think Facebook Live is a big deal. We've talked before in the podcast about this idea of live video. And one of the challenges of live video is it's not crafted, right? I mean, it's just yeah. entirely spontaneous. And so yeah. we've sort of predicted that, you know, this we only picture that kind of video being useful when people are connecting with personalities or if there are big events, right? Like, like a natural disaster somewhere or, you know, people doing Facebook Live from an NBA finals game. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you kind of see it the same way, or do you think there's something more there that we're not seeing? Um, I just I feel like I'm continuously underestimating people's like what people will watch, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like what people find interesting to sit and watch. I mean, I don't think I'm so clever and cute that I want to watch me all day. So I try to provide content with value and substance, but entertainment definitely has value to a lot of people. So I think yes to what you're saying, but also that younger demographic, I mean, who knows, right? And they're kind of running the show. It's like we're catering to 12 and 13 year olds and what are they going to want to watch? How are they going to want to connect? I mean, so we're we're thinking of it in terms of how we use it when it's that, you know, younger, younger, younger <laughs> demographic that is really going to determine how it's used. I, I don't know. What do I know? I yeah, just have my name well, and lights in my office. Aaron. <laughs> you, you obviously know a lot because you're really good at this. And uh, oh, well, I just want to say thanks again for giving us your time. That was, that was really insightful. Was, I mean, that was just that was full of all sorts of great nuggets of wisdom. So, Oh, good. Again. I'm so glad. No yeah, problem. You're the, you're the best. All right. Well, uh, take care. You too. Well, thanks, Aaron, and thanks also to Allison for agreeing to be interviewed. We hope you guys found that interesting. We'll include links, as usual, to uh, the Allison Show and various other places where you can find Allison and uh, her content online. Uh, it's been a, a fun change of pace to have that interview as part of the show today. Uh, our third segment today will be a preview of next week's Apple event. Uh, Apple obviously expected to announce a new uh, iPhone or iPhones, I should say, the iPhone 7 and presumably 7 Plus as well as a new version of the Apple Watch, so the Apple Watch 2 um, at this event. Uh, It's been held in San Francisco, uh, the Bill Graham Auditorium again. It's uh, where Apple's held a couple of recent events, um, including last year's equivalent event. Uh, So we're going to spend the next sort of 15, 20 minutes or so talking about what we're expecting to see there and some of the sort of implications of that. Um, I will be out there in person. Uh, We haven't talked about it yet, but I imagine we might well try to record sometime shortly after uh, the event as we have done for the last couple of years just to try to uh, get a quick take from both of us on on what's actually announced next week. 
Um, let's kick off with the iPhone, though. And I think that the important context here is um, outside of Apple, in general, the smartphone market's maturing. And what I mean by that is actually two separate things. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the saturation is starting to become a thing in major markets and in the developed economies of the world where most of the people who are ever going to have a smartphone have one. Uh, with the exception of sort of the rising generation that will continue to add, you know, uh, some units here and there to the, to the overall base. Um, and at the same time, the smartphones that we have are very good. And so uh, people are willing to hold on to them for longer. Um, they perform perfectly fine even after two or three years. The battery is still fine. They're still plenty fast. Uh, the cameras are good enough. The battery is good enough and so on and so forth. And so it's into this context that Apple will be launching these new iPhones that we're going to see announced next week. And so you would think that Apple would want to focus on making the upgrade as meaningful as possible. And yet the rumors suggest that we're A, going to see the same form factor that we've seen for the last two years, so there won't be a dramatic change in the sort of shape and size of these phones and the design of them, externally at least. Uh, and then secondly, one of the other big headlines has been the removal of functionality. In other words, the removal of the three and a half millimeter headphone jack. So somewhat surprising in that context that I just talked about of a, a maturing smartphone market. Uh, there have been other reports as well about cameras being a major focus. The event invites that went out featured what's known as bokeh or this kind of soft focus lighting effect that you get with cameras that have good depth of field, which uh, smartphone cameras traditionally haven't had the best of. Um, so it may be an indication that we're going to see something better in cameras there. But uh, let's discuss all of this. Um, Aaron, kind of what's your, your take on, let's talk about the headphone jack, first of all. I and mean, we've talked about this a tiny bit before, but it'd be good to do a slightly deeper dive on this whole question. Yeah, it feels like a lock that the headphone jack's going away, only because, you know, sometimes with the rumor mill, you can see Apple putting his thumb on the scales. And it feels like that's happening around this particular thing. And, and I suspect it's because they're trying to soften the blow of, of the headphone jack disappearing. It, it's obviously very Apple-like to get rid of it. I, I think what's interesting about this one is the way it complicates the iPhone substantially. Mm. And it complicates what Apple actually sticks in the box. Because there are also some pretty reliable rumors out there, seemingly reliable about the, this thing that they're going to, these new headphones are going to call it earpods, which are, you know... Uh, did I say there is it earpods? Yeah, the, the well, wireless yeah, earpods ones. is kind of Air, well, yeah, the yeah. ones we have now are also called the earpods, of course. Right, but, I think yeah. AirPods or whatever they're going to call it. I mean, the idea is that there's there's a rumor out there and there's a trademark filing, and I forgot to look it up. But anyway, um, essentially, that they're they're going to be shipping a wireless set of earbuds, and we have no idea what that looks like, which has been surprising because it makes me wonder in what volume they're producing these things. Right. But then just today, there were a couple other pretty reliable rumors indicating, and there have been pictures in the past of the standard wired headphones, but with the lightning adapter at the end instead of a mm -hmm. standard stereo jack. And, and, I, and I think that's a lock. But here's the interesting thing, right? Like, so, you, so you're Apple. What do you put in the box? Right. And which box? And is there a whole separate skew where when I buy an iPhone, it comes with the wireless uh, earbuds instead of the wired ones? Mm you know, what's going to happen in the packaging? Or do I just sort of get this pair of wireless earbuds that I probably won't use because I'm buying the upgraded ones anyway? Right. It, that, that, that's, a, that's an interesting logistical decision that Apple has, I'm sure, made already. And I'm not sure how it's going to play out because none of that sort of feels like the simplicity that Apple tends to prefer. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and ditching the headphone. And that's why ditching the headphone jack has been a suspect decision because it doesn't feel like an upgrade. And that's been rehashed, that's been hashed over by a lot of people on the internet. So I don't want to go through it all again, but, right. but, uh, but that is kind of the heart of it with headphones. I mean, I mean the, the reality is the future is that headphones are going to be wireless. I think, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's inconvenient to have to plug something into your phone. But, uh, and Apple's obviously very interested in pushing technology along that way, but, but for yeah. a lot of people, it's going to be a downgrade. Right, right. And that's the challenge. And my, my feeling throughout has been it was unlikely that Apple's standard approach would be wireless earbuds in the box, simply because Bluetooth is quite a bit more expensive, at least done right, than wired is. Yeah. Um, and so they'd either have to take a cut on margins or increase the price, and neither of those seemed very likely. Uh, and the third option, of course, would be to put subpar Bluetooth earbuds in. But that's the last thing that you want to do when you're trying to push people through a technology transition is make the experience worse. Right. So at the very least, my assumption has been that whatever's bundled in the box performs equally well, if not better, compared with the earbuds. And they haven't been the best uh, earbuds available, um, but they're perfectly adequate. They're what many of us use on a regular basis. I'm, I'm using a pair right now. Um, as we record this for the Skype call that we're on, um, you know they're, they're perfectly fine, and so whatever is in the box has to perform at least as well as that. And so I, I found that the latest rumors today that that Lightning version of EarPods plus a Lightning to three and a half millimeter adapter will ship in the box. That that seems entirely plausible to me. It's always seemed the most likely outcome. As you say, the most interesting question then becomes. Does Apple release its own wireless earbuds? Uh, is there a, a version of the iPhone where you buy those with it instead as a bundle? Do you have to buy them separately? How much do they cost? Are these really, really high-end things? Are they the clever sort of things that you just tuck into your ears and nobody can even see them? Or are they something different? You know, there are lots of other questions. And as you say, there have been very few credible rumors about exactly what that will look like or how it will be positioned or priced. But, uh, but again, this, this is a tough transition. And, and, and here, as elsewhere, and this is going to be a theme, I think, throughout what we talk about, the positioning of all this is going to be super important. The way Apple explains why they're getting rid of this jack uh, that's worked perfectly fine for generations um, in favor of, say, Lightning or wireless is going to be really important how they describe that and how they justify it and how they position you know what lightning based uh, or wireless earbuds and headphones can do better um, and the lightning ports a smarter port the three and a half millimeter jack allows some clever stuff like volume control and so on to be passed through but lightning in theory could be a lot cleverer it's just a question of kind of what you do with that i mean most of us only want to be able to pause and play and adjust the volume through our earbuds so it'd be interesting to see if there's any additional intelligence that they take advantage of there um, the other possibility of course is that there's some new wireless standard you know airplay is a proprietary technology for using wi-fi to transmit audio um, around their home for example could they do something like airplay uh, rather than using Bluetooth for some new wireless headphones or earbuds. It's another possibility. Seems less likely to me, but you never know. That might be another way they could go. They're, they're definitely going to make a big deal out of how old the, the old headphone jack technology is. right? They're mm -hmm. going to say, we can't believe this has been around for so long, and, and well, we've got something better. And that, that the next part is going to be the interesting part, Right. just exactly. like you're saying. Yeah. So let's talk about the cameras, because that's been the other sort of prevailing, prevailing rumor about um, what's going to be in these new iPhones. It's dual cameras, possibly only in the larger of the two phones. Um, you know, this is the, the big headline kind of upgrade. I mean, the headphone jack is arguably a, a, 
either flat or a downgrade, depending on your, your perspective on it. The cameras are the big upgrade, potentially, uh, from a feature perspective. Um, what's your take on what we've seen there? Uh, I think the dual cameras are a lock, and I also think they're only going to be in the iPhone 7 Plus. Uh, I think Apple made it pretty clear last year that the Plus is going to get better cameras because they can take advantage of the size difference. Right. Although I, I did read a rumor that the optical image stabilization is going to come to the regular size iPhone, mm -hmm. which is exciting. You know, I think that was always the biggest differentiator. Um, I think what's going to be really curious is what Apple actually does with the dual cameras because they won't be the right. first to do it. But mm -hmm. uh, the ways that they actually make it useful, um, that's going to be the fascinating part. And that's what makes me think that, you know, one of the cameras might have a, a much wider aperture um, than the other one. And that's how they're going to sort of manage that situation. Because wider apertures are not something that were an impossibility in, in smartphone cameras up to this point. But I think there's always sacrifices made at one end or the other when you make choices like that. And the nice thing about having two cameras is you, you know, you, you, you can hit multiple points on the trade-off spectrum. And, and that's, I think, what the message is going to be about is there's a lot less that you have to sacrifice now by using your smartphone as your primary camera. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the cameras in our smartphones have got to the point where we, they're certainly substitutes for point-and-shoot cameras. Uh, I've seen some stuff that's been a bit overblown this week about, oh, this is going to be a DSLR-level camera. Simply isn't possible. If you know anything about camera right. technology, you know how DSLRs are built, you know the advantages that they have, and you know, the, the, the size, frankly, of a DSLR gives you... Uh, you get these micro four-thirds cameras and other things that, that shrink that down somewhat, but even those are significantly bigger than anything approaching, you know, what you could fit into an iPhone. So I think it's very important that people don't get overexcited about what's going to be possible. But, you know, this could be the first big advance in the quality of what iPhone cameras are capable of. And, um, you know, the reality is over the last couple of years that competing smartphones have got very, very good in the camera department. You know, it used to be a real edge for the iPhone. Um, you know, the premium Samsung phones were very good in every other department but until the last couple of years they always seem to fall a little bit short on the camera they're now very good and in some cases better at things like lower light photography and so on so this is an opportunity at least for apple to start to uh, establish some sort of clear daylight between them and the competition again if they do it right and if as you say they really take advantage of these dual cameras to, to provide a meaningful differentiation around the camera and photo experience um, my one concern is that by only putting it in the larger of the two phones, there's much less of a reason to upgrade to the smaller of the two. Uh, clearly, that's partly deliberate because the larger of the two is also the more expensive of the two and drives higher ASPs and revenues and so on. But of course, the other thing that people could do is just hold on to the phones they have for longer. If it already looks the same, if you're going to lose the three and a half millimeter jack, and if you don't get the special cameras, then you might well decide, well, what's the point in upgrading this year? I'm going to wait and see what they have next year. And so I do worry that the combination of things that Apple's going to release this year, especially in the smaller of the two iPhone 7s, might not be all that compelling an upgrade. You know, I, I think there is one way that Apple has a chance to sort of go after the DSLR market. And it's, but it's not going to be through equivalent hardware because, I mean, that's just that just comes down to physics, and that's the primary reason why a smartphone can't be a DSLR replacement. But I think there is room for Apple to approximate what DSLRs can do through software. 
Um, they're going to make a big deal out of the new A10 chip next week that gets announced along with the iPhone. And they're going to talk about all that they can do to make their their software approximate what really good cameras can do. It's actually something they've already done, right? In years past, right. they make a big deal out of, out of what their software accomplishes in terms of making the camera better. And so I think what you're going to see next week is they're going to be talking. Uh, there are going to be hardware improvements, and they're going to kind of brag about those. But I think they're going to probably spend a lot of time on software improvements as well, especially because of those dual cameras. I mean, it's going to be software that makes those shine, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if, if that weren't the case, you'd basically get two versions of every image you take, and you have to pick between them. That's not exactly innovative. It's, it's what Apple will do in bringing those two images together. To, to make right. it exciting and interesting. And so it, the, the problem will always be that because it's software approximating what hardware would have done had the hardware been there, yeah. uh, th that's where people might get hung up on, on whether or not it's any good because it's mm -hmm. never going to be what you actually would have seen in a DSLR. It's going to be what Apple's software and processor thought you might have seen had there been right. a DSLR and how close yeah. Apple can get to that will be the real measure of whether or not they're approaching that category of cameras. Right, right. Yeah, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit in what I said just now in terms of the upgrade not being that significant. I think the key thing to understand with iPhone upgrades is that most people aren't upgrading every year. We, we focus on that. We say, what's new this year? But the reality is that the most common upgrade cycle is every two years. And so what you really have to look at is not just what does Apple announce next week, but what did they announce a year ago at this time? And then you add those two up. That's the difference between the phone that most people have and uh, that they bought two years ago and the phone that they might or might not buy this year. And if you add those two together, we don't know what there's going to be next week. Clearly, it's going to be some stuff around cameras. It's going to be the A10, as you mentioned, presumably an M10 motion coprocessor as well, and, and various other sort of speed and performance enhancements. But there's also going to be 3D touch. There's going to be live photos. There's going to be 4K video. There's going to be a faster touch ID. You know, compared to the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus that people bought two years ago, there's all that already before you even get to what gets announced next year. And I think that's the key thing. For most people, it's still going to be a lot of new features in the hardware compared to what they have now, uh, regardless of what they announce next week. And so anything above and beyond that, any surprises that we might see and so on, uh, will be a bonus. And so that's the reason why, you know, even though... Uh, I have some concerns about you know, the slowing upgrade cycles and the fact that Apple needs to make this fairly compelling. You've got to factor in all the enhancements that are already in last year's device that would be an upgrade for people that bought a device two years ago. Yeah, I agree. And, and throw on top of it that there are probably going to be some new colors. At least the rumors are pointing that yeah. way. Mm -hmm. And new colors are sometimes all it takes to get somebody to make an upgrade. Right, so. right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's... That's, uh, you know, as, as long as you're not wearing a, a case on your phone or at least right. a case that's transparent. That's the tricky thing about the new colors. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that shows through in the front uh, on the top and bottom of the device. Um, let's talk briefly about the Apple Watch before we wrap up. That's obviously the other big thing we're expecting to see. We're not expecting new Macs. Certainly the rumor mill has been fairly consistent on that point. We might see something uh, in October, probably not at its own event. But Apple Watch certainly does look likely to be released next week. And GPS would be one thing, some kind of advanced health and fitness capability. And it's worth mentioning we had an episode where we talked in depth about where sensors in the Apple Watch might go um, back in episode 54. So go back and listen to that if you haven't listened to it yet. But um, that's kind of what the rumor mill has happening in the Apple Watch, which, you know, given that it's been sort of two years since it was first announced, a year and a half since it was first 
uh, released by the time it probably comes out. Um, interesting sort of set of upgrades there. Yeah, I you know I think the, the the reporting so far on the new health features has been conspicuously blurry. Right. Um, and I would feel like if there was anything really groundbreaking, it would have surfaced already. So I think what you're going to see on the health side is just a bunch of refinements. They're going to talk about how much more accurate the heart rate sensor is, for example. Right. But it, but beyond that, I don't think it's going to be really super dramatic. I, I, I think the thing that I'm most interested in is the rumors are pointing to the idea that the form factor is going to stay largely the same. Right. And that will be breaking a trend that Apple has set over new products for the last decade and a half. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the iPod had a major form factor change from version one to version two. The same is true of the iPhone. The same is true of the iPad. Mm -hmm. um, Apple's had two years instead of a year, which has been typical in the past, going from version one to version two. So they've had two years to work on the next version of the watch. Uh, I will be part. Part of me won't be surprised just because the rumor mills are saying they're you know they're saying that that it's there's not going to be a form factor difference, but part of me is going to be genuinely surprised that after two years Apple is keeping the watch pretty much the same physically, because uh, that's not something they've ever done before going from a version one product to a version two product. Yeah, yeah. No, that'll be very interesting. Um, I think one of the more interesting things to think about with health and fitness is to what extent Apple might start making the Apple Watch something that has accessories. Um, and what I mean by that is either special bands, and obviously it's already had Apple's own bands and a couple of partner bands, but uh, do we get smart bands, for example? Is there a capability in the new version of the watch that you can make smart bands that have sensors of their own that go above and beyond what the Apple Watch itself does that add capability from a health or fitness tracking perspective? Are there third-party wearables that somehow integrate with the Apple Watch? Is there a broader ecosystem where uh, either third parties or Apple itself start to create other wearables that also fit into health? You know, whether we see that this time around or not, I don't know. But perhaps we start to see the sort of beginnings of this kind of extensibility of the Apple Watch. I think that would be a really interesting thing to look out for. Um, certainly, Apple Watch uh, as a brand, so the middle. Uh, element in the range is largely sold out in its current version right now so looks like that's going to disappear the sport's still sticking around so it may well be that that sticks around even longer and gets a nice price drop down even further from where it is already um, the other question is whether the edition sticks around you know it was something that people really had mixed reactions to to say the least when it first announced clearly it was never going to be a huge seller you wonder whether they're going to really continue with that or whether that's also going to be discontinued or refreshed or somewhere in some way that's a funny thing to think about because I could picture Apple going either direction, yeah. di ditching it or doubling down on it. It's mm -hmm. hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is just performance, right? So we talked about the A10 and the new iPhones. Um, you know, the the Apple Watch is almost two years old at this point, at least as far as when it was announced. So, you know, there could be a significant move forward in terms of processing power. And Apple Watch OS three brings these enhancements in terms of app performance, but. Um, the big question is, you know, do we also see a nice performance improvement in the hardware that enables apps to perform faster as well? You know, the two of those together could be quite compelling. And, you know, this is, to be honest, I don't care about GPS and the new watch. I, I don't ever use my watch without having my phone with me as well. It just isn't important to me. What is important is that apps start to work much more effectively. Watch OS 3 goes some way to solving that problem. But if we get better hardware too, then that could, could really make a difference too. Yeah, and I think speed improvements in the processor at lock. I mean, two years, right, between the yeah. S1 chip and what's going to be the S2 chip. I mean, that's 
that's an eternity with the way Apple does its silicon design. Yeah, no, absolutely. Any last thoughts on the, the Apple Watch before we wrap up here? No, I think it's going to be a relatively small event, but uh, all, all together, there might be a bombshell waiting, but I kind of doubt it. So mm-hmm. tune your expectations accordingly. Right, yes. I mean, any surprises really will be surprises. I mean, there's been very little detail about anything other than what we've talked about. So anything else will be quite a big surprise. And that'll be fun. I always enjoy those. You know, it's always nice to have some things that are somewhat unexpected. But as I said at the top, I think the biggest questions to my mind are how they position some of the changes around the iPhone, that the lack of a new design, the removal of the headphone jack, the cameras, why they're in one and not the other. There's so much of this stuff where the wording around it, the way they pitch it, the way they describe it, it's going to be really key. Um, and then who describes those things? I mean, you assume it's going to be some combination of Tim Cook and Phil Schiller. Um, but, you know, we'll see kind of how that's all pitched and positioned because I think that's perhaps more critical this year than it has been for quite a while. All right, well, let's wrap up this episode as we usually do with our weekly pick. And this, as a reminder, is where we take it in terms to recommend something that we've been using or something that we've enjoyed recently that we think our listeners might enjoy as well. Uh, this week, my wife and I watched a film. came out some time ago. It's now available to, to rent and buy online and elsewhere. Uh, it's a film called The Man Who Knew Infinity. And it's a true story uh, set around the time of the First World War. It's about a, an Indian mathematician called Srinivasa Ramanujan, uh, he's played by Dev Patel, who, if you saw Slumdog Millionaire, will be familiar to you. He's been in quite a few other things as well. Uh, he was uh, self-taught. He was from India. Um, didn't have much formal sort of advanced maths education, but uh, managed to read some books and had some sort of mentoring and became an extremely gifted, sort of very intuitive mathematician who was ultimately invited to Cambridge University and studied under some, some of the top mathematicians of the day. Uh, Jeremy Irons plays the the main character on the the English side of the story who becomes a mentor to him. Uh, And it's just fascinating. And the story behind it is almost even better than the film. So uh, I recommend the film, but also suggest you you read up about the story. There's quite an extensive Wikipedia article about Srinivasa Ramanujan, which is fascinating to read too. His life story is really, really interesting. Uh, But inspiring film. Um, It's a little bit of a sad film as well. I won't give away any of the details, but it's tough in some parts as well. Um, but uh, I hadn't heard a lot about it. Um, the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes were sort of middling, not fantastic, not terrible, um, but actually it was really good, some really good performances from both the leads. So, again, we'll link to that on the website, as we always do, but the the movie is called The Man Who Knew Affinity, and uh, it's available on iTunes and various other places where you buy and rent movies. All right, well, that concludes our episode for today. Thank you for being with us. Thanks uh, also to Aaron and to Alison for the, the middle segment today. Uh, We will be with you again next week when, as I said earlier, I imagine our main focus will be what Apple announces next week in San Francisco. Thanks.